Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is February the 20th, 2015, and this is episode 1524 of the Survival Podcast. Yes, and it is Friday, 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 but you didn't hear it boomed out with the monster truck voice because we're not doing a listener call show today. Nick Ferguson's on his way here. I've got a lot of stuff to get done. We have a major uh, thing going on. We have two major things going on. Nick's going to get here, and right after he gets here, we have a call with our Arkansas client for the major installation we've been talking about up there, uh, close to a 1,000 acres of land that the pro- the, the, the uh the uh, project will entail in time, probably a few hundred acres initial. So uh, I've got that going on. I also have a video to shoot with him, and we have the plant propagation conference calls this weekend, uh, Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 2 Central Standard Time. If you are a student of the plant propagation course, uh, you can be on those calls uh, to ask me questions about business and the business of running a nursery, and Nick all the questions about uh, the logistics and the plant side of, of running a nursery. And uh, we're going to you know, spend four hours of time with the students that took that course that was unadvertised. It will be recorded. It will be available to all students that are current students of the course and anybody that takes the course in the future. I keep hearing from people that said, I missed the chance to take the course. No, you didn't. There's no deadline to take this course. If you want to take the course, you can take the course right now. You can go to permaethos.com, sign up for the plant propagation course. Those of you that pre-registered to get the discount, if you haven't taken advantage of the discount yet... Do so by the 24th before it expires. Yes, it expires at the end of this week. That's why we're doing the call now. Uh, we figured we'd give most of the people that pre-registered at least a chance to be on the call. If you're a student and uh, you're not going to be able to make the call, you can email me questions, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, put TSPC plant question or TSPC plants in the subject line. And I'll sort those out. We are going to give priority in answering questions, obviously, to students that make the call uh, live. But if we have any dead space in there, we'll use those questions to fill it. So right now I have quite a few already have come in. You should have got an email giving you the call-in information. Uh, if you're a student for that class yesterday, if you haven't gotten it yet, email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com and put TSPC call in the subject line and tell me I'm screwed, I haven't got it, whatever, and I'll send it to you directly. All right, so this again is going to be tomorrow, Saturday from 11 to 1 p.m. Central Standard Time and the same time on Sunday. And Nick and I are also shooting uh, a bunch on um, tree pruning and collecting scion while he's here as well. That will all be bonus material added to the course. So we're continuing to actually make that course worth more after we've sold it. Uh, anyway, kind of an aside there, but this is a way that I reach the majority of you that are part of what we're doing there. I wanted to make sure everybody knew because I know spam filters screw things up. Now, before we get into today's actual show, which is an interview, and I'm going to warn you right now, if you haven't eaten, turn it off and go get, go ahead and go put some food in you, even if it's some junk food, before you listen to this. Yes, it's him. Chef Keith Snow is going to be on. We're talking about old school food preservation cooking techniques. Things like confit and things like fermented vegetables and the things that you can do with them. And I'm going to have Keith on in just a moment. Before I do that, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, JM Bullion. Hey, do you know what the plan for the dollar is? Make it worth less. That's the plan. 
That's not conspiracy talk. That's the Federal Reserve's actual plan on paper. If you ask the chairman of the Federal Reserve, they'll tell you that. If you ask any member of the Federal Reserve, they'll tell you that, and they'll tell you it's a good idea. If you ask the few members of our Congress and our government that actually understand the Federal Reserve and what it does, the few of them that are there, uh, other than maybe the Pauls, you know, everybody else will tell you that's the plan, and it's good for you. It's a good thing. Inflation's a good thing if it's controlled. That means that if you took $100,000 and stuck it under your mattress, and we had 4% inflation this year, it's worth $96,000 at the end of the year. USA, number one. Yeah, that's the plan. That's that's the plan. It's no different than somebody coming in your bedroom and taking $4,000 out from under the mattress. That's actually what they do. They steal your money by devaluing it and printing more and giving it to themselves. That is the plan. And with that being the plan, I like to have an insurance plan. In case they ever screw it up and it goes a little faster than they planned because, you, you know, government occasionally and, and, and giant corporations occasionally and the two of them work together occasionally, they get a little cocky and they screw things up. That's why I make gold and silver a part of my investment portfolio. I believe in a very sensible approach to this, 5 to 10% of your net wealth in precious metals, most of which should be precious metals you can put your hands on, physical metal. I get mine from JM Bullion. I think you should too. Why? Better pricing than Monix and Atmex. Better service than Monix and Atmex. Small company with people that care about you. If you have a problem, email me. I will send your problem to the president of the company, and he will bust whatever head has to be busted to fix it. That's been my my experience for three years now working with JM Bullion. I have no intention of working with anybody else. Uh, the silver and gold industry is tough. Some of you know my history with it. A lot of stuff happened that I would have preferred never happened in my life. When I find a partner that I know I can depend on, I stick with them. JM Bullion is that partner. Next up today, another guy that's a partner. Been a partner for over four years now. It's going to be five years in February. Well, it's February. So March, I think, was actually the beginning. So the end of this month, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason will have been a sponsor of our show and the work we do for five years. So if you want to get a Berkey or you want to get parts for your Berkey, go to Directive21.com and buy it from the guy that sponsored us for five years. Again, five years. Most podcasts have never even thought of lasting five years. This is a sponsorship of a podcast that's last five years. If you check out what Jeff's doing at Directive 21, you'll find all the great stuff from Berkey, and you'll also find a lot of other really great stuff for your preps. He's an incredible guy. He's a maniac at customer service. You know you can depend on him because I do. Check him out today. Don't be the person that buys your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy, the guy at the gun show that started selling them last week because he heard it was a good thing to add to his portfolio. Go to the source. Go to Jeff the Berkey guy Gleason, the guy you can trust. Again, because I do. Anyway, with that, before I get into uh, my interview with Chef Keith Snow, I do want to remind you, we do have a sale on the MSB going on. Discount code is cold. Normally, the MSB is $50 a year. It is now $30 a year. Again, the discount code is cold, C-O-L-D. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members. You sign up there. People keep asking, how can I pay if I don't want to use PayPal? Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, scroll to the bottom where you sign up, and you'll see a form that you can fill out and send in and pay by United States mail. I take silver. I take cash. I take checks. I take money orders. I will take you signing your firstborn into my service for a year. I don't know. Whatever. If you, I'm kidding, of course. But if you want to barter something, hey, reach out to me with an email, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I've bartered a lot of different things for MSB, including, well, I bartered coffee with a couple different people. Anyway, before I, uh, before I bring Chef Keith on again, I wanted to remind you of that sale, and we need to take a look at the year that was the episode, because the year is 1524. 
Yesterday I put the wrong year in the title. I said it right. We did the right year, but I did get the wrong year. Uh, sometimes I'm lucky to know what day it is, let alone what year it is. But what do we got here? So I got three great history segments for you today, again, in the year 1524 from Alex Shrugged at tspwiki.com. Uh, segment one, trading, usury, and the reversed mortgage, the German Peasants' War, and the Golden Ass, Grand Nicaragua, the oldest city on the mainland. I'm going to read, I really want to read trading, usury, and the reversed mortgage, because it's interesting, but I'm going to read Grand Nicaragua the oldest city in the mainland, because we've had such a focus on Europe throughout the history segments. Um, and this is a brief one. The oldest city on the mainland, which is you know mainland America, was established this year in what is modern-day Nicaragua along the coast of Lake Nicaragua. Francisco Hernandez de Cordoba names the city Granada after the city in Spain that was taken from the Moors in 1492, and it maintains its Moorish appearance. The official money is named the Cordoba in his honor. Not much to say, this is Alex's take, except that despite claims of other cities, Granada was officially registered earliest in Castile and Aragon, which are present-day Spain. Um, so I think that what you really have here is the oldest, if you want to call it city, that still exists, right? And the oldest city that was established by the Europeans. Because there were certainly things that we would have called cities that were established by people like the Aztecs prior to this. And I know Alex knows that. I'm not really picking on his assertion here. I'm just saying it's a good thing to think of in context. That that's something that we tend to think of as the people that are currently in power. That wherever we came, when we came there, that's when things started. And that is a cocooned look at history that belays the reality. We also should understand a big part of why that was even possible. Uh, it wasn't just gunpowder and armor and swords that were able to defeat uh, the native peoples of these two continents. It was disease. It was disease. And then through the history segments, we've seen the impact as people have come here, what has happened uh, to many of the people, the native peoples of this land, as disease has spread among people with no resistance to it. And I bring that up because, you know, I've, I've been a pretty big defender of those who choose not to vaccinate because I believe it's your right to decide what goes in your body, plain and simple. But it's also kind of a, a demonstration of the fact that, you know, in by and large, vaccines are effective. And I think we need to make informed decisions about them. I, I am uncomfortable with some of the things that uh, are pushed by modern science in the world of vaccines. I'm not sure that we need to vaccinate for everything that gives a person a sniffle. And I definitely don't think that if some old lady dies in Wischesterton, Fieldville, Iowa because of the flu, it's not because I, in Dallas, chose not to get my flu shot this year since, well, the CDC says it's probably not going to work anyway. And it's that hysteria that we need to separate from a logical debate about this. And again, I think that the number of people who actually choose not to, to, to vaccinate is sufficiently low that they're not your problem. But, of course, the government doesn't want you to think that way because then you'd think rationally and you might pay attention to what they're doing instead of what some dude in Kansas is doing or not doing with his kids. My take by Jack Spirico. And with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. And it's my good pleasure now to warn you one more time. If you haven't eaten, you probably should get something to eat before you start listening to this. Uh, anyway, with that, hey, Chef Keith, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Hey, Jack, it's great to be with you. 
Man, you have been an incredible asset to our audience in this show for quite a few years now as a sponsor, a member of the Expert Council, a frequent guest. I think you did your first Thanksgiving show with me about four years ago, maybe five. Uh, so you've been around a long time, but yet we do have people tuning in every day. We have you on today to talk about cooking, specifically old cooking methods that are good for, you know, keeping food uh, with a longer shelf life or creating storage opportunities other than throwing it in the freezer uh, or throwing it in the canner, which are the two ways that most people know how to do it today. Um, but before we get into that, could you just kind of tell people why the hell should anybody care who Chef Keith Snow is? Uh, what, what, is your, your, your real chef? Did you, did you get an honorary chef title from the, uh, from the, uh, the I don't know, the, the, the Internet Chef Association? Or uh, you know, just kind of tell people what your background is. Sure, man. Well, yeah, I started, uh, I started cooking a long time ago. When I was about age 14, I'm now uh, 47. I hate to admit it, but so a lot of years of cooking. And I started out at, at first washing dishes and, and uh, worked my way up through the ranks and eventually trained with French chefs and uh, really got serious about it probably in the early 90s. And I worked in a lot of different uh, restaurant kitchens, some really fine restaurants and also some some dumps. So I've, I've really seen it all. At the end of my career in the kitchen, um, I was the executive chef of a major ski resort up in the uh, high country of Colorado. So uh, that was a really big position, about $10 million in food and beverage sales. I had several hundred employees and I think 11 or 12 different restaurants and coffee shops that I ran. So um, throughout my career, I've cooked a lot of different food, everything from um, you know, managing these skier cafeterias, also to fine dining, to fast food, not not like, um, you know, McDonald's fast food, but quick casual, I'll call it. But I've done seafood in lots of different cultures. Um, so I've, I've really cooked a lot of things throughout the years. And I think all of it was terrific, but I, re I really never found anything I was super in love with until I moved to a farm in western North Carolina in 2003. And at that time, um, having grown up in a dairy family, my uncle had a big, several big dairy farms. Um, the last one was in the Amish country of Pennsylvania. Spent a lot of time on the farm, really, really loved the farm and the raw milk and the barns and all that thing. And uh, when I started to have some of my own children, um, we were at the uh, ski resort working uh, at about 10,000 feet. And we had a daughter and I said, you know what, let's. Let's raise her on the farm. So we wound up with some property in western North Carolina, and we built a barn and a house. So all of a sudden, um, we moved from the, the, the high alpine setting to the, to the beautiful mountains. And um, at that point, we started to get into local food. And this was right in the, in the heart of the uh, low-carb movement, the, the first one, you know, the whole Atkins thing. And nobody wanted to hear about anything except eating sausages and bacon and eggs for breakfast. So <laughs> local food and farm-to-table really wasn't um, that big at that point, but that's what I started doing is um, that type of cooking. And I made a lot of contacts with local farmers, and um, we had horses and gardens and goats, and we were drinking raw milk and you know bringing all kinds of uh, food from the field, um, different farms all around the area, and eventually – I wound up doing um, a television show called Harvest Eating, which ran on a, a network called RFD-TV. Um, I printed a cookbook with um, a publisher called Running Press, and I basically toured all over the world promoting that. 
It was all about cooking with local and seasonal food. You can find that book on Amazon still. It's just called The Harvest Eating Cookbook. And uh, I founded the Slow Food Chapter with four other people in the Greenville, South Carolina. So I was, I was way into this sort of farm-to-table thing, but I was out in front of it a few years. And as um, people realized that they needed more than sausage and bacon, if you could believe it, they uh, started to get into local food a little more. And, and this whole back-to-the-land thing started happening in earnest. And like I said, I was in the right place at the right time. And my website grew and, you know, I've developed some notoriety on the Internet and, and the cookbook has done really well. So all that stuff kind of, um, you know, gave me a solid foundation in, in what I do now, which is the, uh, the podcast and the website. But I'm um, really excited about today's topic, Jack, and I know um, you should be, too, being that you're now the uh, – you know, the largest duck entrepreneur in Texas. So I don't know about Texas. I think we are, as little as we are, I think we are probably the source for duck eggs in the Fort Worth area. Um, probably the Dallas-Fort Worth area is crazy. That's like 6 million people. Because we have people driving from McKinney, which is like, oh, God, it's like 50 miles away through like the heart of the beast of the city just to get duck eggs. Yeah, it's 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 pretty crazy. Yeah, so we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. Hopefully, we won't talk about the the century eggs or whatever. I'm not real hip on that idea, but yeah. uh, or the pickled eggs. Yeah, yeah, I like pickled eggs, but the, you know, what I'm talking about the thousand year old eggs or something they call them. And then, yeah, uh, no, I see. I figure there's just a couple things out there that are these Asian egg delicacies. This is how I think they happen. So I think they they used to find eggs wherever they could find them, and sometimes they would be half you know, ready to come out of the egg, halfway uh, incubated. And then they had to eat them because either you eat or you starve. So you tell the kid it's a delicacy, right? And then sometime down the road, like many peasant foods, it comes back around and becomes a delicacy, and hence you have bullet. Because um, I don't really see the point of eating a half-grown duck in an egg. I, <laughs> But whatever, man. Let's talk about something better. Um Let's start out with, you know, why would we really be interested in old preservation methods? I know we've got a bunch of preppers on the line here, but, you know, we are modern survivalists. We use modern technologies like freeze-drying and what I would call pseudo-modern, like canning. You know, right. canning's, canning for people in their homes is 150-ish years old, right? It's not, it's not ancient technology. It's not something they were doing in the 1600s in the French uh, farmlands. So why would people want to learn about these older methods? Well, like you said, there, there's a lot of um, you know newer methods, and I guess one of the newest is, is freeze-drying. I happen to own a, a home freeze-dry machine, so I've been messing around with that. And, of course, it's a really interesting um, technique, but uh, you're talking about quite a bit of electricity, quite a bit of cost. Um, but these old-school things, they've always interested me a lot, um, particularly – when it comes to preserving foods, I mean, I've got a, a line of um, pasta sauces. So through the years, I've had to learn a lot about um, making food shelf-stable and designing recipes and formulas that not only taste great but can be um, processed, which essentially is canning. It's basically um, it's a canning method that we use to make uh, the pasta sauce. But so all these things have really interested me through the years, and I've done tons and tons of canning. And um, like I said, having seen this kind of farm-to-table movement come on, canning has exploded. At one point, the ball jar company, it was the strangest thing, but they came to me. Uh, this is when my cookbook was out, and, and uh, they actually wanted to 
do a really big deal with me, and and uh, they were talking about having these life size life size posters and all the supermarkets and the WalMarts. You know, there was a, supposed to be a harvest eating, you know, ball jar partnership, and it was a very interesting situation. And they were growing at just a stunning rate. They would tell me something like thirty percent a year. They were ha- having trouble keeping the jars in the stores. So people have really gotten into canning, and that's kind of the tip of the iceberg for preservation. There are other methods out there, and um, you know, you mentioned you've got a lot of preppers on the line. You do, and. When we think about prepping, a lot of folks right away, they, the electricity thing comes into their mind. And, you know, what if we didn't have electricity? Was there preservation methods way back when? And of course, um, for just a millennia, people have been preserving foods out of necessity. And, you know, some of the really cool methods, and it's also interesting because there's a lot of science in, in any of these methods. You have to understand, you know, basic biology and, and uh, microorganisms and how things work. But, one interesting thing is uh, salt drying. And I mentioned Western North Carolina. You get into Kentucky and Virginia and all around there, and there's still people um, back in those hollers that, that dry, um, you know, hams. And those are salt-cured hams, and they sit in these um, these houses that they have on their property. And there, there might be hundreds or thousands of these hams that are cured with salt. And that's, you know, that's kind of an American thing to some degree, although they do uh, that type of stuff in Europe as well. But one one thing is really interesting with, with salting is it, it makes foods like leather. They're completely, um, there's no moisture in them. They're kind of rubbery and leathery, but they can last literally forever when they're salted. And you think of um, baklava and, and stuff like that, which is salt cod. And you see a lot of that um, in Portuguese culture and Spanish culture. Um, up in Massachusetts, there's quite a Portuguese population around New Bedford and Fall River. And you see a lot of people using salt cod. Have you ever cooked with salt cod? I personally have not. And you got to be careful, I guess, with, with, with languages. Because when he first said that, I was thinking of the the uh, Tur- Turkish confectionery stuff. Uh, uh, you know what I'm talking about. It sounds a lot yeah. like what you, the word you just used. There. Right. And, and I may have butchered it. but Yeah. I, I don't know. I, just, like, I was like, oh, I was excited. Like, what that? That's that's horrible. I guess not. <laughs> yeah, when, when they mention it in in uh, in Portuguese, it sounds one way, and then um, you know Americans butcher a little bit. But you can find it, and even uh, here in Florida, in Publix, they sell it. Yeah, it's I've basically seen it. I've just never tried it. Yeah, it's salt cod, and and um, on the face of it, it's you know most people would look at it like, what the heck, you know, what could I do with that? But this is something that um, that folks have have done for centuries and if you you know if you had access to fish you certainly could dry it in this method by using um, salt and what the salt does is just through osmosis it draws out um, the water that's in the cells of the fish and it impregnates this uh, salt solution and and bacteria just does not do well in a salty environment and that's what um, really preserves it and you know pirates and sailors they used to keep big 55 gallon you know drums of salt and they would salt fish and and that's the kind of stuff that they would live off of but i want is a huge commodity from the past that we we don't realize how important it was at one time there were you know soldiers in the roman legions were paid partially in in silver coin and at times partially in either beer ale whatever you want to call from the time or salt like salt was a, a portion of wages to a lot of people at the time. No, that's for for sure. That was uh, 
Uh, hopefully we don't get back to that, Jack, because I don't no. want to get paid in a bag of salt one day. But, yeah, you, you need it for things like that. And when it's that valuable, when it's when it's equating to your, you know, being able to survive, it's um, it's pretty interesting. But you can look at some really fascinating culinary options with something like salt cod. Now, you may think, you know, how the heck do you eat a salty piece of fish? And it's the same thing with that, you know, that ham. Um, when you try a slice of that ham... I mean, it's pretty salty. It's very leathery. To me, you know, a lot of Southerners may may want to kill me after this, but I don't really like that stuff. That's uh, it's pretty rough to eat. But this salt cod can be can be really interesting because you can soak the salt cod. You take it and you soak it in water uh, for as much as 24 hours, and you change that water. And some people will soak it in milk as well. But the idea is. Um, a solution like that will slowly draw the salt out, not all of the salt, but enough of it to make it palatable. And it's still going to have a strange texture even when it's rehydrated and you've soaked it for 24 hours and you've taken a lot of the salt out. But in the end, you've got kind of a, you know, it's a piece of codfish, but you can make an unbelievable dish. And I wanted to just go over this because this is something, um, now I'm not sure if anybody in your audience has access to a lot of fish. You certainly could um, do get the fish yourself, salt them, and preserve them like this. But you can also, um, you know, buy the stuff and keep it in your preps, and then cook with it. But a really neat way to to work with salt cod. A lot of people will make it into like cod cakes. You know, they'll rehydrate it and they'll mix it. You know, think about a crab cake, and they'll make a kind of a cod cake, and that's pretty cool. And the Spanish do a lot of things with it, and the French do as well. And there's one dish that's called brandade, and it's salt cod, and it's cooked in a pretty unique way. And it has uh, potatoes and garlic and some milk and cayenne pepper and Parmesan cheese. And eventually, once it's all um, brought together, they bake it in like a gratin with little breadcrumbs on top. And you have this mixture that's just, it's unbelievable. I mean, it definitely has a little salty background, but... It's terrific with the creamy consistency of the potatoes and garlic, and it's emulsified with olive oil, and then people put it on crackers. I mean, it goes from being, you know, dried fish that some stinky sailor would eat to this, you know, really fine um, kind of French-style appetizer that you could put on a, a piece of crisp bread and have some wine with it. So it, it's actually very versatile stuff in that regard. I think a lot of times things that are salty, and you know, you say you can reduce the salinity there, but you're going to have a significant amount of it. People need to realize how much salt a chef puts in food. I mean, that that in, that actually can substitute for that additional salt, and if you put enough other things with it, it does begin to balance out. As you were talking there, what I was thinking is, you know, that might actually make a pretty nice fish chowder as well. And since I heard you say the word potato, I was thinking thinking along those lines, like a potato corn fish chowder. No, definitely, and and your point is well taken. You can just use the ingredient itself as, as the seasoning method because some of that salt will get into it. But that's just one um, kind of one way to think of an, a very old school. I mean, one of the oldest school preservation methods, which is salt drying, and how you can turn it into something modern. But you know, right away when we were coming up with an idea to do a show like this, I know that you've got the ducks. Uh, I was thinking about one of my favorite things, which is confit. Can we talk about that from uh, maybe give two different versions of it? Because what you would get if you ordered that in a fine restaurant 
isn't a hundred percent different, but it usually is done a little bit differently than if you want something that's going to keep well in a, in a cool crock for uh, you know a few weeks. Yeah, well, basically, um, confit, C-O-N-F-I-T, confit is basically just means cooked in fat. And um, I mean, you're definitely talking classical French here, but this is something that anybody can do that has access to um, duck legs and duck fat. And in a lot of stores, you can you can buy duck fat. But in your situation, where at some point you're going to be butchering some ducks, it's you can roast the ducks and you wind up with a lot of leftover fat. And this is something that can be stored in your refrigerator, you know, almost for eternity, um, because it's a highly saturated fat. It, it stores really well. But the the method, I'll go through the method of making cone fee here. And, and I also wanted to tell your listeners that because it's a little complex, I've decided to um, put it in a, a newsletter format. So I'm going to, at the end of the week, I'll send out an email to people that are on the list over at harvesteating.com. If you want to get on that list, you just visit the homepage. But I'll send it out. That way your listeners have access to it. But basically, it's a pretty simple process, and it's a two-part process. And it goes back to using salt as well. But you basically take your duck legs, and and those of you that don't know, you know, what a duck leg looks like, it has a pretty heavy uh, layer of fat, more than a chicken. It's got a very thick layer of fat over it. Basically, what you do is take a Dutch oven or some type of a large um, storage container, and let let's say you've got four, six, something like that, duck legs. You lay them fat side down into this crock in a single layer, and then you've got um, coarse salt. You could use kosher salt or gray French salt or fleur de sel or Celtic sea salt, whatever. You take it and you sprinkle a pretty good, now I'm not talking about a half an inch, but you sprinkle a good coating of salt right on the duck, and then you toss in some crushed garlic cloves and fresh thyme. And you, you don't have to be shy about putting in the, um, you know, it doesn't need to be thyme leaves. Just take thyme and rip it up and throw that in there. And then put a few more duck legs on top, some more salt, some more crushed garlic, more thyme. And then what you want to do is take some plastic wrap, in, what they call in contact, not over the pot, but you want to push it down in the pot and press down. That way the um, wrap is on the duck. You cover it. And you want to refrigerate that for about 12, minimum 12, but more like 24 to 36 hours in your refrigerator. And this is curing. What's going to happen is the salt is going to remove liquid in there, and it's going to get in there. And like I mentioned earlier, salt and bacteria don't get together so well. So after, let's just say you leave it in there 24 hours, you take it out, and what you want to do now is run it under cold water, and your goal is to remove as much excess salt, and you just rinse it and kind of rub it with your hand, then put it on a board, pat it dry, and now comes the confit part. That was the curing part. Now you're going to take it, and you're going to reverse it, put it into a pot, and you can use the same pot. You just need to clean it out, but put it into a pot with the uh, meat side down so your fat is up, and lay them in there, and then you're going to pour melted duck fat. It doesn't need to be hot, but melted duck fat, right over top, and you're going to fill it so those legs are under the fat. And then you take parchment paper, and same method, in contact, press the parchment paper down so it's you know in the oil. You cover it up, and you put it in a 275-degree oven for three hours. Make sure that oven was preheated, so you put it in there for three hours. And what's happening in there is that duck meat is going to get super, super, just absolutely succulent and tender, 
After three hours, you take the pot out, put it on the stove, take the cover off, and let it sit at least an hour. And what's going to happen, it's going to cool down. And then you're going to reach in there, and you're going to take the duck legs out. And what I like to do is I take a half sheet pan with a little um, rack. You know, when you're baking cookies, your wife has a rack. Put the rack in there and just put those um, duck legs on top of the rack and then pop them in the refrigerator. They need to be in there for several hours to to set up because they're really soft at this point. So you want them to set up a bit. And then to let's let's just say you want to serve a couple of those for dinner. What you're going to do is take more duck fat, put it into a skillet about medium high heat, and you're going to put the duck um, skin side down into the pan in the fat, and you're going to cook it about five minutes, and it's going to go nice, and, and you want it to be a very golden brown and start to get crispy. Flip it over, two minutes on that side, and then you can serve it with something. Um, you've got all this duck fat. A really great recipe is taking baby new potatoes, or if you don't have little potatoes, you can cut up Yukon Golds, whatever type you have, and basically put them into a pot that's got a few inches of duck fat, throw them in there with some garlic and thyme or rosemary, and you want to cook them in that fat until they're good and tender. And you serve that with the duck cone fee leg. You just put it right on top of the potatoes. And it is something that... Um, People that haven't tried it when they first taste it, I mean, you've got that crispy skin. It's just unbelievable. And that's how you eat the duck confit. But now let's talk about storing it and preserving it. Once you've um, cured it and you confit it, you've cooked it like that, you need to take it and put it in something that's completely clean. And we're talking about sterile. And it could be a plastic, um, like a vertical, maybe four or five quart uh, Rubbermaid container, something like that, that's, um, you know, kind of tall. You don't want something that's flat. And you take your duck legs and you want the, uh, the bone, the bone is still going to be in there. You want the end of that bone sticking up and you put them in there vertically. So stack as many of you have into your thing vertically and you want it to be, um, you want them to be standing up, not laying down. And then you pour um, fat, room temperature fat over them right up to the top. And that's going to cover all the meat. If the top of the bone is sticking out, that's no problem. You cover it with plastic wrap. And now that can go in your refrigerator for six months. If it's done properly, and that's the caveat, if you follow all the steps, you cure it at first. And don't cure it for two hours and then um, confit it and then think it's going to be okay. But you have to do it the, the right length of time to make the, uh, to make it safe. But if it, when it's covered in fat and in the refrigerator, that fat sealing the meat down, no air can get in there. It's still salty because you've, um, you've cured it like that. It can last six months. And what the French used to do is they had, you know, big, we call them root cellars, but you know, they had wine cellars. And I've been in French wine cellars when it was 102 degrees outside and it was 55 at the heat of the day in the wine cellar, they would have duck confit on racks down there, and that stuff could last quite a long time. And that's a real classic way to uh, to preserve duck. And it's you know culinarily, it's top notch. Yeah, and it, it for people like me that raise ducks, it kind of fits in a whole procedural thing. So if I'm let's say going to slaughter a few ducks, well, then I can take my breast portions off and 
that's just a real easy thing to do. Uh, once you've got that done and a couple of hash marks and sear the skin and flip it over and throw it in the oven for about six minutes and do it medium. So those are like a great now type of thing. So like I did, that's something I can serve today. I take all the skin off the duck, uh, other than the skin that's on the, the leg portions and render that into fat. Then I get these little duck crouton, skin crouton things that are just unbelievable for like on a salad. And then you use the fat with the, the leg portions. And I've done the wing portions, Keith. I don't know if you've ever tried that, but uh, like the drumette and the little second wing link. Uh, and I've done those confit too. And it's really fabulous. So then that kind of can be put away and you got this kind of whole total package out of one animal. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, and another thing that, that the French do, and I've played around with this, I've done it with pork. I've also done it with fatty fish like salmon, but uh, they call it riettes. And it's basically taking that concept of preserving um, with a layer of fat. And uh, basically what you would do, and again, if you've got ducks, um, you take your ducks and you want to season the outside of, of a full-size, you know, grown processed duck with salt and pepper, maybe some fresh thyme, and then you want to stuff the cavity with aromatics. Like I would take a big handful of thyme, garlic, ginger, maybe citrus rind, um, lemon or orange would work. Stuff that in there and then put your duck uh, in the oven and you want to roast that duck and you can cover it. You can do it inside of a like a, a Dutch oven, put the cover on and put it in there for a couple of hours, slowly cooked again, like around 275 degrees for a few hours. And what that's going to do is render a lot of the fat off of the duck. So it's going to be sitting in a pool of fat, and then you're going to have really soft meat. So same process. Let it cool down a bit. Then you want to pick all the meat off of those um, those bones. Now, you do not, definitely do not want to throw out those bones because you can make an unbelievable duck stock out of them. And in fact, when you do a dish like this, you're going to have a combination. When you pour, when you get all the meat off the carcass and the bones are out, you're going to have a combination of stock in that because the bones are cooking and fat. So you take that and you pour it into a container and what will happen is the um, it'll separate quite quickly as it comes to room temperature. So you have a thick layer of duck fat and then underneath it you have some brown stuff and that's kind of like a duck stock. Now you can make these rillettes by taking that duck meat, you throw it into a bowl and you want to season it up with some crushed garlic, probably some um, parsley, chopped parsley, uh, salt and pepper. And then you're going to take some of that um, duck stock at the bottom. If you put a ladle down underneath there and you pull some of it up, you'll pour a little of that on top. Then you want to mash this up. And you can you can use your hands. It's probably the best tool. But if you don't want to use your hands, just a wooden spoon. And you don't want to see big chunks of meat. Riettes is kind of... Um, almost like if you can think of when you open up a can of tuna fish, you know, the, the good albacore stuff and you pour it out, it's kind of in small pieces. You want to make this uh, fairly well combined. And then you take that mixture. At the very end, you're going to put some of the duck fat right in it, mix it all together. And you need to taste it at this point. Make sure that it's got enough seasoning. If it doesn't, adjust the seasoning with salt and pepper. Make sure you like the way it tastes right there. Then they, what, they, what they would do is take... Um, canning jars or um, crocks. Now, I, I like to keep a lot of those French crocks um, in my pantry, and those are the ones that have the bale and you put the lid over it and it has a rubber seal. Um, 
So what you do is you stuff it with the rillettes and you pack them down in there and then you leave about a good half inch on top and you pour melted duck fat on top of that. You close it and that can go in the refrigerator for at least 90 days. And I've done that before with um, pork rillettes and had no problem at all. Also, I've done it with um, chicken and it works out beautifully. And and the pork, I don't think I left the pork. I'm trying to think how long the pork was in there. Quite a while, but absolutely delicious. And and that uh, the fat on top will of course solidify in the refrigerator. And you take a crusty baguette and you reach in there with a with a knife or a spoon. You get some of those rillettes. Very very popular in the countryside of France. But just such a good thing to make. Doesn't take that long. It's very easy. Um, and again, underneath that layer of fat, it will be preserved for a good long time. And there's a lot of things we can do this with. People think of duck because it's a very traditional thing. And I think part of why is because the duck is like its own little food factory. You've got the fat. You've got the crisp skin. You've got – I mean, there's so many things that come off a of duck. The stock we can talk about in a second because that's freaking phenomenal. I've I've made lots of chicken stock and chicken soups in my life and lots of duck stock and duck soups. And duck soup sounds a little funny, but, man, it's awesome. But – There's a lot of other things we can do. I've seen people do basically a version of carnitas as a as a as a confit. Um, my my friend Neil, who's kind of fancies himself a little a home gourmet chef, does chicken that way. And for fat, he uses peanut oil. Yeah, you can do that. And I've seen um, a lot of really interesting things done with um, with that type of confit meat. Everything from duck confit ravioli to um, you know take a corn tortilla. And uh, fry it in a skillet with a little bit of oil, and you put some of that wonderful duck confit, maybe some black beans and slow-cooked greens on top of that. It makes a really awesome sort of taco or burrito. Oh, cool. So it's, yeah. it's versatile stuff. Yeah. Have you ever done many other meats other than duck yourself? Um, duck, pork. Um, I haven't tried beef. Duck, pork, and um, definitely um, salmon I've done. In in both of those, oh, you're the you're probably the guy that taught that kid that won Master Chef Junior. <laughs> yeah, you you can, see that kid? He did a a, a, a salmon confit. Yeah, he and, uh, he deserved to win, right? He was pretty he was pretty awesome. I think he's the one that won. It wasn't the he didn't do that the week they had the winner, but I think he was the one that won. And and uh, Ramsey and his his other judges were pretty impressed that he would even try that. Yeah, you know these these methods they they sound a little you know anytime you get the the, the snobby French in there it, it sounds a little difficult but in reality it's 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 very easy and uh, it's just awesome fun I mean I love those type of projects I mean that's something that I really like to do is making you know different you know, I call them kitchen projects but stuff like this is really cool not too long ago I made um, um, I made some you know what you would call They call it potted ham. It's basically it's pork rillettes, and uh, I made it just before Christmas, or actually maybe it was after Christmas. But I gave lots of it away to neighbors, little crocks of it, and I used a little bit of pink salt so it would have um, you know more of a a ham looking color. But you don't need to do that because when you do it with duck or pork, it's going to look you know kind of dark looking. But either way, it's it's delicious stuff. And you know, you put that on bread at a party. It's it's just a great thing to do, and people just nobody makes it anymore, so it's really kind of unique. But it's a great preservation method for, you know, particularly in your case, you've got ducks. Rather than just freeze them or whatever, you can make them into these type of things and have them for months and months on end. 
I know that like when I've always gotten my duck fat the way you described with roasting. I've, I've until recently I've not parted ducks out. I've always roasted them whole. And then when I, I started bringing all these ducks in and realized there's going to be a lot of duck meat here, I learned how to do the fat rendering on YouTube. You know, with basically you take a pot with a little bit of water in it so that it doesn't burn at first, and you slowly heat it and you cook it down. It's the same way you render basically pork rinds and get lard. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh man, I what are those little crispy things like? And the first time I made them, they're like crack. I mean, you eat one and you're like, oh my god, because you think of a pork rind as being this thing in a you know, sack at super super uh, grocery store or whatever, and it, they're not that appetizing. Or whatever. If you've ever had them, you know, fresh pork cracklings that are just out of the skillet, they're unbelievable. Well, the duck, I would say, are just as good. You hit them with a little bit of herbs and a little bit of salt, and I don't process that many ducks, at least right now. Um, but they've become, when they're available, my new crouton. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh again, it's really it's it's rich tasting, and when it gets crisp like that with a little salty note, yeah, it's it's amazing stuff, no doubt. So, can we talk about some other ways that we you know can use older techniques? Um, pickling is a traditional method of preserving food, and you know today people think pickles are kosher dill spears, you know, and and they try to replicate those. But there's a a lot of different ways that pickling's been used to preserve food traditionally. No, that's for sure. That's a very, very old method. And um, I love love making what you would call kosher dill pickles. My mother-in-law, who's German, has a great recipe. Basically, that's a hot packed pickle. You know, it's um, there's a, uh, a boiling brine that's poured over you know, cucumbers, and usually you'd want to use Kirby cucumbers, and then they're, you know, they run through the water bath canner. So that's, that's not, that's trying to kill off bacteria, not to use it to your benefit. So in Montana, we would get these local cabbages and make sauerkraut, and I bought the crock, you know, the big heavy uh, German crock, and, and the, those things are not cheap, but no. they're, they're, they're heavy. And I bought a really a big one, and, um, it's so simple to make something like sauerkraut, which is basically, you know, it's just a fermented vegetable. But that's not, you know, the only one you can do. But making sauerkraut, you know, shredded cabbage put into a, and it's got to be, again, a sterile situation, put into the sterile crock. And then you take salt and you just, you know, you sprinkle salt, more cabbage, and you take this big wooden thing. And the kids had a ball, you know, beaten up to cabbage like a big plunger type thing, almost like when you make butter. But bashing it down and and as it goes down you can start to see it the salt hits it start to release its liquid and and we put probably eight or ten big cabbages in this crock and at the end after really smashing it and layering it with salt not as much salt as you might think there was quite a bit of water in there and then it has a weight that goes on top and it's a stone or ceramic um, two ceramic halves and they sit on top and you cover the top with um some cabbage leaves over the top surface of the shredded cabbage and then this sits and it kind of pushes everything down the cover goes on it but it's not an airtight cover and that's the key here and what happens is it'll start to ferment and it doesn't take long for the fermentation process to start just a couple of days you can hear it and we had the crock up on our counter and you know you'd be sitting there chatting and you'd you'd hear the noise or the lid would kind of make this little funny noise but after a couple of weeks and then a little longer, like six weeks, 
you would take, you know, it had gone through and done its fermentation process and it produces lactic acid, which is a very, very inhospitable situation for bacteria. So at this point, that stuff is preserved and, and crocs of sauerkraut can last a long time, you know, in, in a cool, dark situation. But, um, you know, now that we live in a somewhat modern society, we would take them out and put them in sterile canning jars in the back of the refrigerator. And uh, I've eaten those in the past that were a year old, and they're just as good a year later. I'm kind of betting we have the same croc. I just looked up my order on Amazon from years ago. It's made by a company called Schmidt. Uh, Garatoff German Fermenting Crockpot has the two ceramic weights. Mm -hmm. And I bought a five, you mentioned a big one. I bought a five liter one and, you know, as preppers, you always want the biggest thing you can get. And I was like, is that big enough? And it doesn't look enormous, but it's pretty big. And like the first time I made sauerkraut and I realized since like we're a family of two and my wife won't eat it, I make way more sauerkraut in one of those crocs than I need to make for probably, you know, six months. And, and, and when I have it, I'll eat a little bit of it every day just because it's so dad gone good for you. And, my favorite thing to do with sauerkraut made that way, I like to do caraway seeds with the Bavarian style thing. I, I'm kind of addicted to caraway seeds and they're just awesome. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, that's so true. I mean, a lot of people nowadays, um, you know, people have realized that the, the good bulk of your immune system is what, what happens in your, in your intestines. And, uh, something like this is loaded with just billions of bacteria. So eating a little bit of it every day is really good for you. And when we had it, and uh, we're definitely going to make it again soon. Um, I should go heck now because they're they're pulling them out of the fields now here in Florida. But yes. that is such a good thing to eat. And there's a lot of ways. Uh, I had made some uh, around the same time. I had made some uh, home cured pastrami, mm. and um, you know smoked it and all that. And I had nice thinly sliced oh. home smoked pastrami. See, this is why you're a pain in the ass. See you on the air and I'm hungry. Yeah, I'm making myself hungry. But when you put that sauerkraut oh. on and a little Dijon mustard, I mean, it was awesome. I know I brought my neighbor. I like to give my neighbors food. That way, if I need to borrow a shovel, they're they're, they're uh, always there. Yeah, they're always there. But yeah, that's a that's a good good thing. But um, and that's so true with the size of the crock because it doesn't seem like that much goes in there. But man, you start getting jar after jar after jar of sauerkraut, and and uh, it's a lot to do. But you can. You can also do all types of vegetables like carrots and cucumber and beans with a little bit of cabbage. And, and uh, there's actually a place locally, and um, they they do all this um, type of stuff where you can get – of course, they've got lots of different olives, and um, they've got that, uh, you know, calamari. Hold on. Let's back you up there. Beans? Yeah. You can do um, – Beans in a crock? Yeah, green beans. Oh, okay. Green beans. Okay. Be- yeah. Okay. I was thinking like like – Brown beans, you know, and no, brown no. beans and cabbage. That sounds good, but I don't think you can That's weird. brown beans. <laughs> I guess you could try it, but it seems like they would go to mush, right? Yeah, they would. But, the, you know, beans are great and carrots and, and cauliflower is one of my favorites. But mm. if you do it and you ferment those, again, you can just line. This is where it's really key to have an extra refrigerator. Anyone who's really serious about prepping, you start doing this kind of stuff, you, you'll want an extra refrigerator. But you can just put a few hundred jars of um maybe not a few hundred maybe a hundred jars of of these fermented vegetables different ones and they're incredible i mean when you have a a sandwich just open one of those and take a few spoonfuls of that stuff out of there it's just really really pleasant to eat so that that's another way but i know how much you like peppers yeah and you and i have a thing for peppers and i mess around quite a bit with uh, cayenne peppers 
and also with these daddle peppers. And, uh, this year, my, my daddle crop, uh, I mean, you figure I'm in Florida where they're quite famous. I should do really well, but we have a lot of trees around the house and we just did not get the amount of sun that the, the peppers needed. But my cayenne peppers seem to do a little better. And, uh, one thing that, you know, somebody like you or somebody that grows a lot of peppers, I mean, what are your options at the end of the year? Uh, make them into, make them all into hot sauce or dry them. There's a lot of things that you can do, but you can also use this same method that we're talking about now and, um, make a fermented pepper mash, which is awesome. And again, it will keep a long time. And it's basically you take, you know, for somebody that can get cayenne peppers or, um, scotch bonnets or habaneros, even, you know, jalapenos, the hotter ones tend to last a little bit longer. But basically what you do is just take the peppers, you take the, uh, you want them to be washed in the sink so they're, they're clean, no dirt on them. But you just cut off the uh, stem end, maybe cut them once or twice with a knife, put them into a food processor or maybe your Vitamix, whatever, and pulse it. You're not looking for puree, you're looking for it to be kind of crumbly. And um, once you have this kind of crumbled pepper mixture, again, you just line it with, um, you sprinkle salt on it, mix it together and kind of bash it up. And then you leave it, you cover it with a lid, but you don't want that lid on tight because when things start to ferment, they put off uh, gas. That gas has to get out because if it doesn't, you, you're creating a, a bomb. But if you just have a loosely fitting lid and it can breathe in there, what will happen is you'll you'll make a fermented pepper mash. And that's pretty much the same type of process. If you ever go to, uh, what is it, Avery Island or somewhere down in Louisiana where they make Tabasco, you'll see that they still have hundreds and hundreds of giant wooden barrels where they ferment peppers with salt and this is how they do it but it's very easy to do at home and once you have these peppers um, into this mash like that you can just store them in the back of the refrigerator same thing and they last oh man i've used i've used peppers like that uh, probably two years old with no problem at all um, you can also do a mash that has vinegar in it and again, the combination of the vinegar and the salt with the crushed peppers makes something that can just sit in the back of your refrigerator and you don't have to worry about it, it spoiling when you want to make some hot sauce. You just go in there and you can make hot sauce with it. There's a lot of ways to use something like that. I mean, like a sriracha, you can make a sriracha style sauce. All those things are made um, with with fermentation and preservation, and it comes from something hundreds and hundreds of years old, but now they've got it adapted to a, a modern thing. My favorite thing to do with the crock is escabeche, which is a very traditional Southwest Mexican food. Like if you look at every indigenous culture, every traditional culture seems to have some fermented food. And if you go to real Mexican restaurants in Texas, not not chain places, but real Southwest Tex-Mex places, they'll almost always, as part of your meal, bring this little ramkin dish out or something similar, and there'll be some carrots and hot peppers and onions in it, and they're fermented. Uh, if you go to a half-assed restaurant, they'll throw vinegar on it and claim that it's what it isn't. But my wife's not really particular fond of the heat from full-on jalapenos, so my modification to it is I slice up the, the, the carrots and the onions and the hot peppers, the jalapenos, uh, but I de-seed the jalapenos and I do them kind of like a long, thin slice. And then I'll add to that, um, you know, instead of a third, a third, a third, I'll go a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, and the final quarter I'll do like red and green sweet peppers. 
And yeah. that sort of brings down the heat a bit. And that's phenomenal. And I, the other non-traditional ingredient, because I almost can't make anything without garlic, I'll take like a handful of whole garlic cloves and just pitch them in the crock. And with that, you have to add a little bit of water. And then it's good to either use like a cabbage leaf or some grape leaves to make sure all those little pieces stay under and set your weights on it. But that is phenomenal. And then like when I take it out and jar it, I'll take all the garlic in its own little jar. Because that's like, again, that's like, you know, fermented crack, basically. It's, it's so amazing. So many things you can do with it. Yeah, and, and when I do the um, the fermented pepper mash, I'll definitely put the garlic in there. And um, those of you listeners that like to make pepper sauce, if they go to harvesteating.com or even go to my YouTube channel and they search for cayenne, um, I think if you go to my website, I now have a search box on the top, just search for cayenne pepper sauce, a video will pop up. And in that video, you know, it's cayenne peppers, but there's quite a bit of garlic and some carrots in there and uh, vinegar. It makes an unbelievable sauce. But you're right with the, the garlic in there. That that definitely makes uh, something awesome. And, and, you know, you're thinking about these things like what's the shelf life when you, you go to the store or you grow carrots and, and, you know, cauliflower, whatever it might be. You take these things in and you, you need to cook with them pretty quickly. But if you could use some of these techniques to... Um, you know, use the bacteria just with the salt like that and, and make these type of, uh, you know, lacto vegetables as they call them. They can just sit around for a long time and you're not worrying about them, you know, taking up all the freezer space. And I'm not a huge fan of, of frozen vegetables. I mean, I use them in some cases, but, um, I think it's a value added thing when you do this lacto fermented. Um, and there's, it makes me think of, you know, a famous thing that you get down in New Orleans called a mufalada and it's basically it's a fancy sandwich with a lot of different meats on it and then they top it with like this olive um relish i guess you could call it and it's basically different types of olives peppers and then some vegetables carrots what have you and you can make a you know a lacto version of that and that have you ever had a mufalada jack uh no i've heard of them but i've never had one yeah it's an interesting taste because it it definitely has that real heavy kind of lacto um, flavor to it but you know what they normally do is they take bread like a sub roll and they will you know pull some of the the soft breading out of it and then they layer this mufalata spread and it's chopped mm-hmm. up like they're, they're made you know they're um they're done in the in the fermented style and they're put into a a processor and, and they're cut up into little teeny pieces like that so you you scrub the bread or you uh, kind of mash it in that bread and you layer your meats you know salami ham cheese whatever lettuce and it gives a sandwich. It, I mean, they call it like a sandwich spread, but it's unbelievable, a mufalata sandwich. Mm. And it's something that you can make, you know, at home. And uh, I know now uh, down in Texas, man, they're starting to uh, starting to grow a lot of olives these days. So I bet you some people down yeah, there. Yeah, uh, I try. I'm a little too far north, I think, unless I get a little bit extreme with the efforts. But, you know, down south of Houston and whatnot, it's, it's a Mediterranean climate. They can, especially the Abicua which I know is in the olive oil you sell that, that's yeah. from in California. They, uh, they, they're drawing a lot of them down there now. Yeah. And the, uh, the European olive, um, crop, as it were, had the worst season. Their, their last season was, was like the worst in 50 years. So the, the supply is, is in tight, you know, it's tight supply and the prices are going up. So stuff like California olive oil and, you know, in the future when Texas develops, that, that's going to be a really great commodity for, for people to get into. And yeah, we sell the, we sell it in a three liter bag in a box, which is really cool. 
And it's, uh, it's that exact variety you mentioned, but really good stuff. And, and it lacks that a lot of times a European olive oil has a real kind of a grassy bitterness that some people don't like, but the oil that I sell, um, in that variety is really, uh, very palatable and, and delicious to cook with. Yeah, definitely. Um, now I think the other thing like you're touching on as you're going through all this is the, all these methods of preservation, like some of this stuff you just, you just eat it as, as is, like, like a, a confit is just fabulous. But a lot of this other stuff, it's like you have to understand that it's not just you're preserving it as it is, it's, it becomes an ingredient. So like I was talking about the escabeche. So one of the cool things you can do with that is next time you're making a pizza, and I don't make a lot of pizza because I, I do keep the carbs down, but like a thin crust pizza, instead of using regular sweet peppers, since you cut them in pretty long, you know, the escabeche is not uh, like a relish. It's it's chunky. It's big, long, whole, like something you'd see on a salad bar at a restaurant. So you can pull just the, the sweet peppers out, but now they're spicy from the exposure to the jalapenos, and use those as a topping on pizza. And I think when you start experimenting, you can figure out ways to get the members of your family to go, I don't like that taste, you might imagine who, uh, with the fermented foods to actually eat them. <laughs> right. Yeah, you, know? you, you you mentioned that, and I think of um, another, I don't know if they make it too much in Texas, but it's definitely kind of a Yucatan Peninsula thing. It's, you know, they call it like a Snapper Veracruz. Mm-hmm. We do and, that here. Yeah, and that's a really terrific um, way, and it's got that, that whole kind of, um, salty sort of pickly thing going on, usually as capers and parsley and tomatoes, um, you know, and different spicy peppers, but a really great thing with vinegar. And they, they usually, usually it's red snapper that they do that in, but yeah, red snapper Veracruz is basically a, a take on, uh, escabiche to, to some degree, but wonderful flavors. Like you said, it's, I would love to try it on a, on a pizza. That's yeah. Nice. I mean, you could use all of it. I don't know. Carrots seem, I don't know why. It just seems wrong. But like the onions and the, the hot peppers you could use. But the, the nice thing when you make that is that the sweet peppers take this, the heat on, but they're still nowhere near as hot as like a jalapeno or a serrano or whatever. And so you get a little bit of heat with them. And then you get that tanginess from the, from the fermentation. And it's just kind of an awesome way to do things without, you know, everything, like we said, you know, you don't have to drench everything that you're quote unquote pickling in vinegar to get it pickled. Um, it, 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 and, and there's a, a life, uh, going on inside these fermented foods. Uh, the, the lactobacillus, as you're saying, is a recharge to the gut. But my other kind of favorite method of preservation is dehydration. Not yeah. freeze dry, but just, de- you know, good old fashioned dry it out, whether it's a solar dehydrator, dried in the sun, whether it's an Excalibur. And until I started cooking with them, I never appreciated one of the real benefits to, to dehydrated foods. And I was a chef, this would appeal to you, is the concentrated flavor characteristic that can be extracted. So, like, if you rehydrate a carrot in a soup, it comes out pretty good. You rehydrate celery, eh, onions, they kind of cook in anyway. But if you use those three components of the mirepoix in a, in a dehydrated, you know, methodology into something you're cooking, slow cooking in a crock pot that's going to be a super, a super stew, the amount of flavor they impart to the broth compared to the amount you use is really striking to me. I know the first time I ever did that, I was like, wow, there's a different punch to the, uh, to the flavor of like, let's say the gravy in a stew or the, the broth in a soup. No, that's a good question, and and uh, having messed around, and it's almost the same thing with freeze dried too, but um, any type of method like that, but definitely just a straight up dehydrated when you're because vegetables 
and they have a lot of water in them. But when you remove that water, you concentrate, like you said, the flavors tremendously. And one thing that we used to do is um, in North Carolina, they would grow a lot of, of plum tomatoes. And we would literally, we would pick bushels of these things and um, take the, the stem end off, cut them in half, and just grab them with your hand and squeeze really hard. Most of the seeds and stuff would come out. And then we would put them on boards. And this is in the in the heat of the summer. And we just let them kind of go in the sun and it would take all day but um and you can do it certainly in an oven in, in a 170 200 degree oven you do the same thing and the idea is to get as much of that seeds and scum the pulp out of the tomato but you leave the skin on the tomato just scrape that out cut them in half put them on a sheet tray and you can put a little you know garlic and some fresh thyme or rosemary on top of it little drizzle of olive oil salt and put it in a slow oven like that and you talk about concentrated flavors. I mean, it makes something that's just unbelievable. And, and again, going back to the whole under-the-fat method, um, people in Italy have been doing this for centuries. They dry tomatoes like that in that Mediterranean sun, usually the San Marzano variety. Then they put them in crocks, and they'll um, you know put garlic in there and, and herbs. Um, they'll cover it with olive oil, and they store it like that. Now, I've tried that as well uh, in the refrigerator, but I've dehydrated tomatoes until they were leathery. They were really dry, covered them with oil, and um, left them in there and, and just picked at them, maybe process them a little bit with some bell peppers and put them on toast or grind them up and make sort of a um, a sauce for like a focaccia bread, um, even a soup, uh, tomato soup with some of those kind of sun-dried tomatoes in there. Really unbelievable. But I was thinking earlier about something that's, you know, totally different than what we're talking about, but um, preserving uh, cream. Now, one thing that I do quite a bit, and there's also, there's a video and probably a recipe in my cookbook for those of you that have it, it's to make creme fraiche. And what the, you know, old-time dairy people would would realize is, you know, they didn't necessarily have a, a dairy barn, but they would go and milk their cows, you know, way out there in the pasture, and they put those, um, you know, they put it in wooden barrels, essentially. This is, I'm talking way, way, way back. And then they would, um, you know, on horse and buggy, bring it back up to the house. And sometimes it would be hours and hours on a hot day. Um, the natural um, enzymes and bacteria in the milk would culture it and turn it into what we would know today as creme fraiche. But a modern version is um, heavy cream. I take heavy cream and I inoculate it with um, um, buttermilk, but the buttermilk has to be the cultured buttermilk. And the recipe is about one pint of heavy cream and two tablespoons of cultured buttermilk. Mm. You put that in there, mix it up. Um, I just use it, I do it in a little, um, like a little jar. So I'll put the, the cream in there, the buttermilk, mix it up, cover it with saran wrap. And what I've noticed is you need it to be, you know, close to 70, 75 degrees for it to work and it takes 24 hours. And the next day, after 24 hours, you pop it in the fridge and when it cools down, you've got this thick, sort of slightly sour, but very nutty, um, unbelievable concoction. And what we noticed is uh, even here in Florida, we keep our house, I mean, it's like 65, 67 degrees. So above the uh, refrigerator, we have a cabinet above the refrigerator. And because the refrigerator puts out a lot of heat, it's like it's like a 79, 80 degrees up there. So we, we'll take it and we'll pop it up there. But if you can try creme fraiche, that's a way to take heavy cream that would spoil. You make it into creme fraiche, and again, you're creating uh, you're creating a lactic acid in there from the buttermilk. 
and that sours it. And because it's sour, it prevents it from spoiling as fast. And we've had that stuff in there, you know, six, eight weeks. And it's just as good at the end as it was in the beginning. Can you talk about some of the things you can do with that? Because that's a very versatile ingredient. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, um, the salt cod brandade that I mentioned earlier, mixing some of that creme fraiche in, into that dish is, uh, is excellent. But we do a lot of things with that. I mean, the kids will have a bowl of cereal with a heaping tablespoon of, uh, and this is one ingredient that's funny because it can be used sort of, you know, you have cereal, you're thinking of a sweet kind of concoction. You can put it on your cereal. It makes that amazing. But at the same time, you can make, you know, a jerk chicken burrito and put some of that same creme fraiche on that. And it's awesome. You could put it on top of a tomato soup or let's say you make a, a green pea soup with a little dollop of creme fraiche on it or a crab and cheese omelet with a little creme fraiche on it. There's a zillion uh, ways to use that. One of the things that we do is when they're in season, we buy those um, big juicy dates, you know, the ones that they're kind of expensive. And it's not the kind that are that are already pitted in a little box. These are the ones you find in the produce area. They're, they're Californian dates, medjool, something like that. Big meaty ones. And they've got the pit in them. And for some reason, those dates and creme fraiche together is a combination that my kids love. So they'll just take a little you know, a little ramekin with a quarter cup of creme fraiche and a handful of dates and just dip that in there. And the dates and creme fraiche is just a match made in heaven. So we, we love that stuff. We actually, my wife just, um, she just took, took the uh, creme fraiche container out of the refrigerator and used up the last tablespoon. So I need to make some more, but <laughs> that's I'm wondering, the like, the, I guess the best way to explain it to people would be is if you'd put sour cream on it, you'd use this. This is like a, a richer, thicker, better version of sour cream. Way better, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's dead easy to do. So I don't think in all the years I've made it has it not not turned out. As long as the, the buttermilk, you can't have like, you know, sometimes people, they don't use enough buttermilk. To make, they'll get some to make pancakes and, yeah. and they get the idea, oh, well, there's some buttermilk that's been in there for six months. Maybe I'll use that. You need something where those cultures are are uh, pretty, pretty active. active. I wonder if you could do it with whey then because like one of my favorite things to do, is either make your own yogurt or get a good whole fat yogurt. Yogurt is not made with skim milk. Just annoys the hell out of me. You go in the grocery store and all the yogurt's fat free. It's Light. yogurt. It's not yogurt. It's crap. Anyway, I'm sorry. Just if you can't tell, it bugs me a little bit. Um, in our fat free society where everybody's fat. Um, <laughs> it just amazes me. You That's cut, once they cut the fat, the fatter the people get and no one get. Anyway, so you take a good yogurt you make yourself or you take a, a, a good organic, uh, yogurt made with whole milk and you put it in a cheesecloth to make yogurt cheese. And I can't think of what these things are called now, but I found something at all, pla- of all places, Walmart that I like better than cheesecloth for this. They might be called but don't quote me, farm towels. Yeah, or muslin. Something like that. They're, but they're in like the kitchen section and all. And they're more like a towel you're, anyway. Um, oh, they're flour sack towels. That's what they're called. Yeah. So you throw your, your yogurt in there, you tie a string around, and you hang it for a day, and it makes a yogurt cheese. You mix it with herbs or whatever. And what falls out of that is the whey. And right. that's just teeming with lactobacillus. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Now that was, that's the other way to make it is, is just the way you said. And, okay. And, uh, yeah, cause you, and it, it does taste a little different than the cultures that, that they use in buttermilk. Buttermilk, yeah. But I've yes. made it that way, um, cause I love that. The cheese you're referring to, they, they call it Lebna. 
and that, that's really great. That yogurt cheese with with chives and a little bit of salt. That's that's amazing stuff. Way better than than store bought. So they've ruined cream cheese. I mean, they put so much yeah. guar gum in it. It's basically silly putty anymore. Yeah, I. Uh the reason I like to do the yogurt cheese is it's like the gateway to cheese making because people are like, I gotta buy this and I gotta get a pot and I gotta stir this and curds and it's like, no, take, take the yogurt. You can go buy, you know, whole milk yogurt in the store if you can find it. Dump it in the, in the farm sack, the flour sack towel, tie it in a string, hang it over a bowl. Hang it over something because a surprising amount of liquid's gonna come out of there and you don't, and don't throw that away. Um, the reason it made me think of it is when we do, a lot of times when we do like the fermented vegetables, I'll make a batch of yogurt cheese right before we do that. And I'll put the whey in a container in the refrigerator and I'll drop just a teaspoon of that. You don't have to, but you drop a teaspoon of that into your fermentation crock and it's like a supercharge. No, and it, you're, it you're just gets things right. going a lot, a lot faster, but it would seem like you could make the, the crumb fresh with it. But I'm going to try it with buttermilk. The hard thing is finding actual cultured live buttermilk in a store it's not easy no and it, it's sad and i mean it, you, you talk about the the yogurt i mean i'm right there with you i um i'm amazed at what what they sell i mean the yogurt I mean, used to the new thing a couple of years ago it was greek yogurt and that stuff is great we we love greek yogurt but but now no, it just says greek it ain't greek yeah it's just it's, it's all oikos. it has to be greek it sounds no <laughs> Yeah, and it's, look at like I did a talk recently on uh, on uh, ranch dressing of all things. I like to come down hard on that crap, but yeah, ranch dressing. I had this lady up on a, she was in front of a, a another group of women, and I had her write the ingredients out. There were twenty eight ingredients in this ranch dressing. It's just unbelievable what people eat. But um, yeah, that that's uh, you'll see recipes all over the internet, particularly when you're making something like that uh that pepper mash, and they'll definitely talk about using a little bit of whey. Um, in there because it does just what you said it's it's like a supercharged fermentation and and that's the key is when you're doing things like this um when that when that thing starts to ferment you want you want that colony of bacteria because it's a war in there you've got salt and the idea is the salt basically keeps because there's going to be bacteria in the air that you breathe it all the time no matter how clean your peppers are that the crock there's bacteria that you don't want in there and what the salt does is it basically you know, it's like getting the, the bacteria in a headlock. They're, they're still there. They're not going anywhere. And it waits a few days until that lactic acid, um, the good stuff starts to build up and multiply. And then it gets to a point where you can take the headlock off the bacteria, the salt can, and then it's just killed off. So that's a great point. And, Between and the salinity and the acidity, the, your, your bugaboo bacteria are just toast They're, it's not happening yeah and there's and of course there's, the government has all these warnings and all but people have been eating fermented sauerkraut uh since the first time somebody put too much salt on cabbage and left it in a bowl by accident and, and i have never heard of anybody dying of nothing from eating sauerkraut no yeah they, they they've got to baby us jack we're not yeah. smart enough to do it on our own it's no. like the less living food we put in our bodies, the, the the sicker we become as a society, and the more they sterilize the food. To tr- it, it, it's 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 just the way they're treating humankind. It's just like the way they treat weeds in a field. You keep you keep putting poison on it, and when the crop is adversely affected, the solution is greater amounts of poison and <laughs> sterility, and then you wonder why nothing's healthy. Um, you know, I mean that's. That's just a, a symptomatic thing of society. But yeah, the yogurt cheese is something I'd advise anybody to try that. 
because, and I'm sure you could probably come up with four or five more freaking recipes that'll make us hungry as hell. I haven't eaten yet today, and it's yeah, two o'clock here. But the, the 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 beauty of that is some fresh herbs, a, a cheesecloth or a flour sack towel or whatever, and a jug of yogurt, and you can be eating cheese you made, and it's like cheddar or anything. It's a soft cheese. You can be eating it tomorrow, and then that opens up the whole oh. I can do that. And then here's all these other things you can do. And then when I first heard how to make yogurt, it was the most stupid, simple thing I had ever heard. I thought there was like this complicated way you make yogurt. And basically you fill up a bunch of containers with milk and you put a little bit of yogurt in each one. And then you, you set it at a, a particular temperature and you hold it there for a period of time. And then you have yogurt and you yeah. just keep doing it. Yeah, and it's uh, it is great, and and the more foods like that that you eat that have those beneficial bacteria in there, and like you mentioned, I mean, if you look at the standard American diet, I mean, it, it's it's not good food, but there's very little living food. Everything is just dead, and if you just eat the majority of your diet is dead food, it's not not good for your body. But if you're you know having things like fermented vegetables and real quality fats like this duck fat and things like that, oh. You know, this kind of cheese and, and with all this whey and stuff. I mean, that's definitely the way to, to make your, your body healthy. And it, you got any ingredients for that, that, or any ideas to use that, uh, that uh, yogurt cheese in? Yeah. Well, we used to, um, make that quite a bit. And one thing that I loved is, um, we were growing potatoes at the time. Wow. So I would, I would take potatoes and I would rub them in a little bit of, um, duck fat and some kosher salt and bake them to the point where they were looking wrinkly. So they were very, very well where the outside is starting to get crusty. And I cut across in the top. So lengthwise and then, um, you know, widthwise squeeze it and then take that yogurt cheese. But I would flavor that stuff with uh, quite a bit of freshly sniffed. We used to call them pasture chives because they were uh, wild. And we would um, put tons of chives in there and a little bit of salt and then also um, some cayenne pepper. And put that in baked potatoes, and, and that was just unbelievable. Um, but also, just as a spread on top of a really crusty whole wheat bread, that's an amazing thing. And then we would also take that and make these German-style pancakes, which were very, very thin, almost like a crepe, but had that nice kind of buttery griddle brown marks all over it. And we would take cheese like that and put local honey in it. With some, you know, uh, pan toasted almonds, mix oh, it. Oh, now I feel stupid that I never put honey in that stuff before. Yeah, it's really good. And the other oh, thing. Oh God, you, you you can't. That can't not be good. You just think no, the two really flavors good. merging, and yeah, that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, like that with uh, with some uh, le, um, with orange almond. zest, and then take that and stuff it in those pancake, those little like uh, me, man. Roll it up. Awesome. But yeah, that stuff is is money. Uh, oh yeah. I don't know why I don't have any hanging in my refrigerator right now. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna have to go out as soon as we're done with this interview today and uh, pick some stuff up. And I, I might pick some yogurt up just because we don't have any here, just to do some yogurt cheese because almonds, honey, and yogurt cheese it, that that's like stupid good. Now we were talking about preserving stuff, but let's finish up today. Just do you have any ideas for duck eggs? Um, because I have been just loving my duck eggs and we're finally starting to get the egg count up to where I can actually keep a few a week now from the, from the customers and use it for myself. My favorite thing to do with duck eggs, and I only do this once a week because I do keep my carb count down. You take a piece of sourdough and you butter it. You get a nice hot skillet and you brown it like you're doing like a grilled cheese sandwich, right? 
And then you just take that and set it on a plate, and you cook the egg over medium. And you set that on that piece of toast. And you can have bacon or sausage or whatever on the side, but that's really it. And the yolk of a duck egg is this ridiculous – I mean, like, you look at a chicken egg, and even, like, a pastured, good-quality chicken egg is just, like, wimpy in comparison. It's like this dark, golden, thick, viscous that sticks to the bread – And it's like one of the most fabulous things I've ever eaten, but I only eat so much bread. So do you have any other ideas for preparing duck eggs, you know, other than scrambling them with, you know, Western omelet style or whatever? Yeah, well, um, obviously they're, they are really great. And, and I remember this, uh, this guy in Montana and they sold m mainly chicken eggs, but they also had ducks there and they were kind of sheepish, sheepish about it. They were like, well, here's a, oh, there's a couple of duck eggs. Is that okay? And I'd be like, yeah, that, uh, I'll live with that because they are, they're so awesome. And, uh, but they were hard to get. So I can see why you have so many people coming to your place. But, uh, of course I love them poached. They're incredible poached, but a great thing to do with them. For me, it's just a, a, a classic, you know, frittata, and, it, and it's basically an open-faced omelet. I mean, if you want to um, be honest about it, but with fresh chives and potatoes, and how I like to do it is take some olive oil in a in a good nonstick skillet, put a little bit of olive oil in there, and some nice potatoes that are diced in a, about a quarter-inch square, and then over a, like a low to just coming to medium type heat, you put those potatoes in there, and you just cook them for a good long time and what's going to happen is and you'll toss them a little bit they'll start to go golden you can cook them right in the pan like that you put a bunch of chives in there and then um, either a very very sharp sort of like farmhouse english cheddar or something like gruyere you put a good sprinkling of that cheese right on top of the potatoes and the chives and then um, whipped duck eggs with creme fraiche like we talked about earlier um, some good coarse salt and pepper On top of that, you pour the eggs in there, you turn off the heat, and the whole pan goes into about a 320-degree oven, and it's going to puff up a little bit, but that is an unbelievable way to eat That's eggs. That's awesome. And, yeah, and you can you can do a lot of them. You could you know, whip up like 10 eggs and make a great big frittata, but also... Family meal type thing, and you know, you're talking about potatoes, and I'm just thinking I have like 400 gallons. That's a little exaggerated, but it's not that much of... Jerusalem artichokes here, and I could substitute those for the potatoes. Yep, yeah, that would that would be awesome. But also, I mean, we love that um, duck eggs baked. We would make um, different muffins and stuff, and cakes with them. I mean, they're they're super versatile. The lift they give to any kind of a cake or or anything like that is is substantially an improvement over a chicken egg. Yep, yeah, we um we they're hard to find, but uh, I think I listened to you. Um, I don't know recent one of your episodes talking about your farm uh about you know selling duck eggs and um yeah anybody out there that's got a, got some land apparently the these ducks are the way to way to go man they're so much easier they don't dig holes they make little holes with their bills but they don't like tear your beds up and they, they you want them to go somewhere you can just get a stick and they all go to the same place together and you know, like these uh these metzer hybrids I'm I'm raising now these things lay 300 eggs a year There's not a chicken out there that can keep up with them. So more eggs, better eggs, higher quality eggs, more nutrition, more good cholesterol, higher fat content, higher protein con content, and the good fat again, um, more agreeable animal, and they're just friendlier. I mean, yeah. ducks are all kind of like they want to hang out with you and stuff. Chickens want to be annoying. Yeah, that was my experience with chickens. That was, uh, I don't know, I think we got the chickens before we got our dairy goats. 
But um, of all the animals I've owned, farm animals, I've had horses, chickens, dairy goats, um, and Jersey cows. Kind of think of those. Oh, we also had those um, guinea hens, which, boy, those things are a nuisance. But they're a lot of a lot of people like them. But we we couldn't stand the two we had. But um, the the uh, the chickens were a pain in the butt. After a couple of months, I couldn't stand those things. I mean, when yeah. secretly when a hawk got one, I mean, I would smile because you couldn't. <laughs> you open the door and twelve of those lunatic hens. They would and they're not. They know who feeds them and those things. Yeah. Would be, crap and everywhere then they started to get into my barn they'd fly up on my beautiful um alfalfa hay for my dairy goats and make a mess of that i I wait to get rid of those chickens man and i've i've clipped a lot of chicken wings and it seems like some of the breeds i mean it's partly getting the right breeds and i know some people are going to defend the chicken now for me and i i have nothing against them but i mean i've had a lot of chickens that i've clipped their wings and they can still get over a five foot off fence and you take a duck and you feed him well, and by the time he's an adult and he's got that big duck butt, I mean, they're not getting over a three-foot fence. And that makes it cheap and easy to control them because it's always the same thing with any animal. It's not the animal's a problem. The animal has intrinsic characteristics. Uh, it has intrinsic behaviors. And you have to understand those two things. It has inputs and outputs, and then you have to apply discipline to the system. Well, putting in you know six-foot fencing and... Uh, is expensive, and then people say we'll do Electronet. Well, you better check it all the time because one, you know, in some area, some weeds get up into it in a day, and all of a sudden it's not working, and then they all get out, or your dog's running like a, an idiot, like they do sometimes, and even though he doesn't want to get hit with it, he doesn't pay attention, he charges into it, knocks it over, and all the chickens get out. And, you know, I mean, it's fine for raising, you know, your meat chickens that are like Job of the Hut chickens that don't want to go nowhere and all, but you're trying to raise, you know, Egg layers, and that's your goal, and that's my goal. Primary goal, produce eggs. Ducks, better eggs, easier work, less money, and better feed utilization and less feed requirements because they're just better foragers. They'll do a great job of foraging without destroying everything. Anyway, we're kind of off topic there, but, hey, I appreciate you being with us today, Keith. Yeah, no problem. I always love to uh, speak to your audience. Um, a lot of your a lot of your listeners are, are members of the uh, the Harvest Eating um, website and they listen to the podcast and stuff and I have a lot of a lot of conversations with the TSPers out there, so it's a um, it's it's a great audience. I wanted to mention Jack. I've um, a lot of you guys are buying this um, group of spices from me, and it's the it's TSP. You guys get that fifteen percent discount by using TSP. I've now made it. A lot of people have requested to do it by the pound, so now I've got a, a TSP pack. It's by the pound. Wow! And when you put your discount in there. Um, you're getting way more spices than, than you used to get. Um, and it's only while it lasts. I'm not going to keep it there forever. So I wanted you guys to know that. And also, just to reiterate, I will put um, the uh, cone fee recipe and also something that I'm working on, for, which is another awesome dish, which is a, a lemongrass beef. It's a Thai dish. Ooh. It's going to be going in my newsletter yeah, at the end of the week. So those of you out there that like that, uh, get on the newsletter list. I don't send out a lot of emails, but you're going to want to get those two recipes. I made that the other night, Jack. And, yeah. Oh, man, it was uh, it was damn good. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to imagine that it wouldn't be. 
Um, and I want to throw out a, a, a plug here for your curry stuff too. So you got, you set a bunch of stuff up to our fall festival at Perma Ethos. And while Nick Ferguson and I were cooking all the chicken that had been butchered the day before off the farm, we made some with uh, the, the, the grilled chicken and several other, you know, mixes that you had sent with us. We kind of divided up and kept it separated and we made some of it with the curry. And there were a lot of the jokes about it's like tastes like an Indian's diaper or whatever. But you know what? <laughs> Let me tell you what happened. I was not freaking happy about it. We sent all the chicken inside, and of course we're there cooking, so we're cooking the last pieces because it's hard on a you know two huge grills trying to cook that much chicken to get everything done all at the same time. And when I got in there, there were two freaking wings left of the curry and nothing else. It was all gone. Everybody that mocked it because it was curry ate it. And it was gone. And it's not that the other stuff wasn't good. It was that I didn't get any. Yeah. <laughs> Except one, I split one of the, you know, I gave Nick one of the wings. So I really want to throw out a, a plug for that here for you. That if you're not the person that typically fancies, you know, what you would think of as a curry, it may be because whatever you've eaten is a lot like, and I know you call it the Montana steak seasoning now because I told you to change the name because people hear right. Montreal steak and they think of that stuff that comes in a little, shaker bottle for McCormick, and the two are so different. So I'd really suggest giving that a try. And all we did with that, Keith, we didn't do, we didn't really do much of anything. We did leg quarters, because um, it was just easy to grill the same cut of meat for everybody, leg quarters and wings, and all we did was sprinkle it on. So we sprinkled your, your grilled chicken, your whatever the other one was, and, and the curry, and we just divided it up and, and cooked it that way, and that was it. And there was pro there's probably a better way to do it, but when you're trying to, like, you know, cook chicken for 50 people and get some to eat yourself. You just get it done. And it was, it was freaking fabulous. Yeah. And that, uh, that bulk pack that I just mentioned, that's got a pound of curry seasoning in it. And, and it is a good curry seasoning because a lot of the ones that you get in the store, um, I mean, it's curry is a, is a, it's got a lot of different ingredients in it. Most of them, they just hammer it with turmeric, which mine has some turmeric in it, but then they put in a ton of cumin and that's that, You know, New York cab driver smell, that nasty curry. Mine um, is very light on that, has a lot of ingredients in it. And, and uh, you mentioned yogurt earlier, but if people are into um, Indian food, a little bit of my curry mixed with some yogurt. You put some chicken thighs in that, marinate it for a couple of hours and take it out and um, grill it. It's unbelievable. Are you out of sauce right now? Um, pasta sauce? Yeah. Um, um, yes. Okay. I am out. Um, olive oil is... Is um, we just got a new shipment coming in for the olive oil, so um, that stuff it goes quick. I, I never uh, never seem to get enough because people buy it in sort of uh, fits and spurts. But yeah, we've got the the olive oil and, and that that spice pack in there, so that's uh, that's the main event at the moment. All right, cool, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us. And guys, remember, uh, those of you that are MSB members, you can log into your uh, your members area and get a discount to all this great stuff Keith sells. He does have an incredible podcast. He's a great guy, and uh, thanks for being with us today, Keith. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me, and take care, everybody. All right, folks. With that, this has been Jack Spirigo today, along with Chef Keith Snow, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's